Let me open in prayer, and then I'm really anxious to dive into this lesson. Father, thank you for this time we come together. I'm grateful that we can study your word and reason together. Grateful for the lessons and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will enlarge our minds with the context of this lesson. I pray that the things we learn will penetrate into our hearts. And Lord, may we be the hands and feet to help the hurting in this world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you may remember in our last lesson, first of all, in case you're new to this series, we are literally going where Jesus went in chronological order. We aren't studying, of course, everything in all the Gospels, but we've basically been following Jesus from the start of his ministry back in about 27 AD, being baptized in the Jordan River, going into the wilderness, and we have literally followed him chronologically and geographically. And we sort of stop at places along the way and look at some pictures of the place and some things Jesus taught. So that's kind of what we're doing in this series. I want to give you an idea of where we are time-wise. I have made the assumption in this series that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead in 30 A.D., a lot of discussion about that. Uh, you know, just we could, we could spend a whole session talking about the dating and could it have been later and when was it. For just for the sake of simplicity, I've chosen 30 A.D. That's a very popular uh, thought that Jesus was uh, crucified, raised from the dead in 30 A.D. So that's what I've been doing. So where are we now? We are in the fall of 29. So we are finishing up Jesus' third year of ministry. So he started his ministry when he was 30 years old and had three, three and a half years of ministry. It's hard to be really precise about all this because the Gospels aren't intended to give us uh, a pretty simple narrative, newspaper kind of description. That's not their purpose. But we can piece together the information. Jesus is going to be uh, crucified, and raised, think Easter, think Passover of the Jews. That's in the spring, right around March, April. So it's going to be March or April of 30 AD. In this lesson, we are in September, October of 29 AD. So that's when we are. What did Jesus do in our last visit? He went into some non-Jewish areas. He was all the way up here in Lebanon, what we would call Lebanon now. It was Phoenicia then. Tyre and Sidon are cities up here. He was in uh, Caesarea Philippi, city up here, out of the Jewish areas into the Greek areas. We visited Scythopolis, a very modern state-of-the-art at the time, Greco-Roman city. And he went all through the Decapolis. The Decapolis were mainly non-Jewish people. Well, that's an amazing thing to do. Here comes the Jewish Messiah, and he's out here You're bringing this good news to people that aren't Jews. So it was really a radical thing to do. In this lesson, he is going to leave this area in the north. He's going to make his way back down to Jerusalem and this area of Judea. And so our lesson now will be, he's making that journey, and then I want to focus on a couple of things that happened in Jerusalem. Now remember, we're within five or six months of the end of Jesus' ministry, and you're going to see the tension raised. Here's an interesting passage in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, you see sort of a turning point, and this is about this time in his ministry. It said, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, so the uh, crucifixion, resurrection, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem, meaning he left Galilee, he's going toward Jerusalem knowing that his ministry is coming to an end, that the hostility from the Jewish authorities is peaking, and that he is going to go right into the hornet's nest and teach. And that's the phase that we're in. Interestingly, you saw on that map, to go from Galilee to Jerusalem, he has to go through Samaria. Do you remember early in his ministry, he went through Samaria and he met that woman at the well? And the woman at the well went into her city and said, wow, this Jewish Messiah is says he's even the Messiah for us, non-Jews, and they many of them believed in Jesus. And we just got a warm, fuzzy feeling in our heart 
you know, that, wow, the gospel just successful everywhere you go. Well, I just want to balance the scales. This time, he's headed for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just torch these people? That's a liberal translation. And Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Very interesting insights into James and John. They weren't called the sons of thunder for nothing. But for our story, I simply wanted you to know that the gospel wasn't then or now, always just well-received. So there are people who are hostile in Jesus' time, and you're going to see the Jewish authorities are certainly very hostile, hostile to this. So let's go to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John 7, 8, and 9 because these really are right in this time frame, and the, it gives you a sequence of events. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, in other words, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. So I want you to realize that three years of ministry and those miracles and healing on the Sabbath, the Jews around Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, I'm not talking about all Jewish people. When you see that word, the Jews, in the Gospel of John, he's really talking about the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. The Jewish people, many of them believed in Jesus, but the ruling authorities were very hostile to him. He was really upsetting a lot of things. So they were trying to kill Jesus. So he stayed in Galilee. Well, now he sets his face toward Jerusalem, knowing this is the run-up to the final confrontation and the fulfillment of his entire life is the cross awaits him. And so, however, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is he? They're thinking he's gonna come for the feast. And people were saying, where is that man? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he's deceiving people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Now, these are Jews talking for fear of the Jewish leaders. So what is this feast that they're talking about? This is how we can date this, by the way. This is September or October, and it is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And let me tell you, it was instituted in the book of Deuteronomy, after the Jews had come out of Egypt, I'm back in 1400 BC, 1400 years before Christ, Moses brings the Jews out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea, Red Sea parts, go out into the wilderness, the desert. We looked at that, by the way, that, what that desert was like. 40 years in that time frame, refining their faith. Well, during that 40 years, they lived in tents. They lived in uh, not permanent dwellings. I mean, they would stay a little while, then they would move. They were nomadic people in that desert because they moved around. Well, that word, uh, Sukkot, that word booth or tabernacle, think of it as tents. We're camping, all right? So they're non-permanent dwellings. And so as to remember God's faithfulness in taking care of Israel, for 40 years, remember they got manna, miraculously got bread. There's nothing to eat in that desert. There's no water in that desert. He provided water. He provided manna, bread every day. In order to remember that, for seven days each year, they would have a festival and they would celebrate. But they would live in tents, temporary buildings. So they'd move out of their houses. And I'll show you what people do today that observe it. Orthodox Jews observe this very strictly today. Jews that are not Orthodox, some observe it, but you'll see they kind of do it a little differently. They don't necessarily live in that for seven days of this feast. So it was a time of celebration, remembering what God had done, but you lived in temporary dwellings. So let me show you a couple pictures. This is uh, in Jerusalem. You see these, well, they look like boxes, don't they? Those are temporary dwellings, and they're gonna live there in that dwelling for seven days. And it's their way of remembering what God did to be faithful to the Israelites. So you can just see all those dwellings in this Orthodox neighborhood. Here are some other pictures in not an Orthodox neighborhood. Sometimes you'll just see 
They'll eat outside. In other words, they don't observe it quite as fully as the Orthodox observe it, but they want to acknowledge this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. So this is kind of a more modern way of looking at that. So this is what's happening in September or October of the end of the year 29. I want to remind you again, we talked about the Exodus motif. Do you remember that? How what happened in the Exodus, the book of Exodus, Moses, God comes down to Egypt, sends Moses to bring the Israelites out. He judges Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, parts the Red Sea. They come out. They spend 40 years getting their faith refined. I'm telling you this story really quickly. Cecil B. DeMille took four hours. But, but, you know, wanders around, and then Charlton Heston brings them to the promised land, to the land of Israel. That story is called the Exodus. It's not just a story, it's an event. But that story of the Exodus is an Exodus motif. You're going to see it in all kinds of movies, by the way. It's an idea that has pervaded humanity. Well, that Exodus motif plays into Jesus' ministry, and we pointed out some of the parallels. I won't go back through them, but in our earlier lessons, we showed that Jesus is, in a sense, acting out the Exodus over again. Whereas the Exodus happened for a few million Jewish people, now Jesus has come to lead everybody into the promised land of eternity, to free us from sin. So there's an exodus motif playing itself out. And again, you see in this tabernacles, and Jesus, what he's going to do and teach, he's going to talk, he's going to bring up memories again of God's faithfulness to his people when we were least able to help ourselves. So this is not happening during the Feast of Tabernacles by accident. So let's look at John uh, chapter... Uh, seven, and let's look at what happens when he gets into the temple. So Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and these are, both these stories I'm going to tell you are probably well known, but I want to put a little different spin on it, uh, but they're just beautiful uh, events of Jesus. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, He came, and then at dawn, he went into the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach. Now, this is interesting. So he's made his way to Jerusalem, where the Jewish leaders want to kill him. He goes right into the temple uh, mount. He goes right into the temple precinct, and he starts to teach. And it's kind of like, if you want me, here I am. And he's teaching to all the people, and he's wildly popular among the people. So let me show you where we are. Jesus, this is a map. There's a valley right here, the Kidron Valley. Here's the Temple Mount, and it is indeed on top of a hill. This is the Mount of Olives on the other side, and Jesus spent a lot of time in these olive groves. The Garden of Gethsemane is right there on the hillside. Don't know exactly where that was, but it's right there on that hillside. And so Jesus would go down and up onto the hillside, and he spent the night there frequently with his disciples. In about six months, you'll see him in the Garden of Gethsemane praying on the night before he's crucified. And then he would go back to the temple courts. So here's an example. For example, standing on the Temple Mount, that's what the Mount of Olives looks like. And imagine it without the roads 2,000 years ago, and imagine it covered with olive trees. And so he would go down into the valley. There was a, a brook down there, and they would go up onto the mountain. So that's the Mount of Olives. Now let's stand on the Mount of Olives, and we'll look back at the Temple Mount. This is where Jesus went. This is the Temple Mount today. Needless to say, there was not a mosque there when Jesus was there because Muhammad would not be born for almost 600 years later. But this, the Dome of the Rock, I may have told you this before, but it bears repeating. That area right there where the Dome of the Rock is, that is one of the two Muslim mosques on the Temple Mount. This is the other one, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But this Dome of the Rock is sitting where? The Temple in Jesus' time, sat. And this huge temple mount with this wall around it, big retaining wall, this is a huge area. That's what Herod the Great built. So in Jesus' day, that's what it looked like. It was a huge flat area. Herod literally built up the top of the mountain to make a huge area and set the temple right in the middle of it. That's what it looks like today. I'm going to show you a model that will give you a little better feel for it. This is what the temple, this is a model today, but that's very much what the temple itself looked like. Now, the temple mount is very big, but, and the temple itself was 
huge. It's literally two and a half times as high as the uh, Dome of the Rock. It was spectacular. You could see it from a long way away. It was gold, it was white stone, and you see the temple built exactly the way uh, Solomon's temple was built. And then I'll zoom out just a little bit. This will be where Jesus is teaching. This is the court of the Gentiles, meaning even if you weren't Jewish, you could go into this part of the temple. And it was magnificent, and it's a huge area. You would see people doing all kinds of things in there. Remember, Jesus, when he first came in there, saw people selling animals and money changers, and that's where he overturned the tables. Well, this time, at the end of 29 AD, he goes in there and he begins to preach publicly right there in the temple courts. So he's out there in that big area teaching. And something happens while he's there teaching. Let's finish our story. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group, this is a large group of people, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Well, there are so many things that can be said, have been said. Some of you don't listen to sermons. Uh, I know listening to me, you're, you're searching, you're questioning, but those of you that have have probably heard a sermon about this. I want to make just a few interesting observations Part of it about where he was, but also I want you to realize we're at a crescendo of his ministry. We're near the end of the ministry. I don't want you to think about this as a once upon a time, Jesus had this woman you know, who was caught in the act of adultery. I want you to see it in its historical context. This is an intentional effort to trap Jesus, and it is brilliantly done. These Pharisees are no idiots. I mean, this is brilliantly done, and I want to explain to you what's going on. First, I want to make an observation, because it's important for you to know, just like Jesus did, this is a setup. I mean, no doubt the woman was undoubtedly caught in the act of adultery, but the point is, in Deuteronomy, which is the law of Moses, that's back in the Old Testament, first five books of your Old Testament are the law of Moses or the Torah. Well, there's a law there, and it says if... A man and a woman commit adultery in the time of Moses. They're both to be killed. You notice someone is missing from this story. You also notice that she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, you put that two and two together, and you don't get four. I mean, think about that for a minute. And Jesus realizes this woman is a pawn, and the man's not even here. And so there's clearly justice isn't being done here. So that's one thing. So you see that. The people around Jesus, it's important you understand this, they are afraid of the Pharisees. They admire the Pharisees because they do indeed keep the law of Moses. 613 commands in the Old Testament law of Moses and hundreds more they had made up in the oral law, the Mishnah. I think I read to you some of the things out of the Mishnah. Well, the Pharisees did a pretty good job of being devout. And so they were admired for their religious zeal. They were feared for their religious judgmentalism. And they were really, people resented them for the way they threw their weight around. And so here are all these people listening to Jesus and they look at this and they go, wait a minute, this looks like a put-up job. That poor woman, what, what are you guys doing here? You know, this is not justice. This isn't right. What's going on here? So the people are a little fired up about this, right? So, 
That sets the stage for what they're doing. What they're, I want you to see what's happening here. They are going to pin Jesus in between two ideas, and this still happens today. It's the reason I want you to see this. Between justice and mercy. And they are going to force him to choose whether to do justice or to be merciful. And here's what I mean. Here are the two horns of the dilemma that they have Jesus in. Basically, here's the deal. They're right. The law of Moses says both of the people were to be killed. That's what the law of Moses said. Now, was it enforced all the time? Different question. Very interesting, but different question. They're basically right. Did Jesus say the law of Moses is is done with? No. He said, I came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. Jesus followed the law of Moses. He did not follow all those made-up commands, but he followed those 613 rules. So in other words, they know that Jesus knows that the just thing to do is to enforce the law. Now, albeit this is clearly a put-up job and, and this is just not right, but they're right about that part. So what they're saying is if Jesus says, yes, you should stone this woman, he would be just, he would be upholding the law of Moses, but all of these people that have been following him are going to be very angry with him. He's going to be very unpopular. It's like, you're just another one of the Pharisees here to oppress us. So if he chooses justice to uphold the law of Moses, the people are going to be very unhappy with him, and the Pharisees' problem is solved. They don't like all these people following Jesus. But if he says, no, you should not stone this woman, the people will be happy and go, yeah, you, you tell him. These guys, they're throwing their weight around. But he has violated the law of Moses at that point. He has taught that you should not fulfill the law of Moses. Guess what the penalty is for that? Death. So they're going to bring him in, literally, put him up on charges, legitimately so, and they're going to execute him. Problem solved. People may still like him, but Jesus is gone. You see how brilliantly they've put him between have mercy and we're going to try you. Have justice and your followers are going to leave you. So they've really done a great job of putting Jesus in between justice and mercy. So let's see what he does. So he stoops down and he starts to write. Do you know how many trees have been killed to make paper so that scholars can guess at what he might have been writing? I mean, we've killed forests trying to figure out what is he writing? Well, I'm going to give you an, an idea here in just a second, but let me pause here and see if we have a question about what we've done so far. And I'll just hold that tension for a moment. I'll tell you what I think he might have been writing. Yes, question. The, the question is, this story comes really late in Jesus' ministry. Do you think that he answers this question differently and teaches differently than he would have had it been three years earlier? Yeah, question is, given that this event is happening later in Jesus' ministry, do we feel like he would have answered this differently earlier? I don't think so. I think this is so authentically Jesus, the way he resolves this problem, because he finds a way not to be caught between justice and mercy. He is actually going to do both, and it's more brilliant than, than we can imagine. But yes, I think he probably would have done the same thing, and he would have engendered the same hostility. The hostility wasn't as high at the beginning of his ministry, but it quickly ramped up. Good question. Do you think his teaching changed in general as his ministry progressed, as he got closer to the crucifixion? Did his teaching change? Yeah, did Jesus' teaching change over the course of the three years as he gets closer to the crucifixion. His fundamental... By the way, I'm glad you asked that because it gives me a chance to remind you of this. Do you guys know what Jesus was actually walking around preaching? I mean, if you stop and think about it, because we hear all kinds of things. You read books about the Bible. You talk about, you know, love God, love your neighbor, uh, love everybody all the time, do that kind of thing. Great stuff. Jesus definitely was interested in love. But if you go back to the beginning of his ministry, and this went all through his ministry, what Jesus was really preaching was this, and he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. That's the core message of the gospel. Repent, 
Repent, it's a religious word. It actually wasn't a religious word at the time, but it is now. Basically, what does repent mean? It says, change your direction, change your mind, change your life. You're going this direction, go this direction. That's repentance. The word literally kind of means change your mind, therefore change your life. He says, I want you to change direction because there's a kingdom coming into the world that's going to overcome the evil in this world. That's Jesus' core message. That never changed. It's all about the kingdom. His whole point is to the cross. Why the cross? He said, oh, so he can die for my sins and I can go to heaven. Yeah, kind of. I mean, that's true. It's just about that much true. I mean, it's, it's true, but it's only a small part of the picture. That's how the kingdom gets ushered in. How does Moses set the slaves free in Egypt? I just went back 1,400 years. Okay, back to Yul Brenner, Charlton Heston. How does he do that? Basically, God judges them, and you have the plague of the firstborn. The firstborn die, and the blood of the lamb saves those people. Read Exodus or go back to our earlier lessons. How does the kingdom of God come into the world and overcome evil? The blood of the lamb covers our sins. The cross is about Jesus dying for your and my sins, the empty tomb is about him being raised to life so that we too can live eternally. That's true. That's just a small piece of what he's doing. He's bringing the kingdom literally crashing into this world, the kingdom that we as Christ followers are part of. So in that sense, I would say, no, Jesus' teaching did not change at all. He knew exactly what he was here to do. His level of conflict and his openness to to be in Jerusalem teaching things that were going to get him killed, obviously he was a little more assertive at the end as he saw that time coming. So that's a good question. Okay, well, let me move on. Uh, so what is he writing? I'm going to give you two interesting ideas. No, uh, First of all, nobody knows what he's writing. Uh, he could have been writing down the names of the people. He could have been writing down all kinds of things. I want to give you two thoughts here. I like the second one better. This is from Jeremiah. This is an Old Testament prophet. And it's a judgment on the people of Israel. Think now, I moved back in time to about 600 years before Christ. Listen to this judgment in Jeremiah 17. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. I don't know if he's writing that verse down or not, but I know that he's writing something that, that is convicting them. Listen to this passage. This is probably, uh, uh, make sure I get the right one for you here. Yeah. Here's out of the Law of Moses, Exodus chapter 23. This is one of those 613 commands, and it has to do with what's going on here. At a trial, you could not have a capital trial unless you had two witnesses, two eyewitnesses. One eyewitness was not enough. You had to have at least two eyewitnesses. But listen to this part of the law. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious Witness, you shall not fall in with many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit sitting with the many so as to pervert justice. So what is Jesus doing? I think Jesus is doing something that points out to them, you're accusing her of breaking the law. Let me write for you which one you are breaking. Now that's conjecture on my part, but whatever he's writing is problematic for them. In other words, they realize, okay, this is not going the way we thought it was going to go. So then he stands up. I want this to make sense to you. They are also breaking the law. Now, that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make what she did right. If you get anything out of this story at all, here's what you cannot get, is Jesus is fine with people sinning. He is not fine with any of these people sinning, including that woman. But what he's saying to them is, by bearing this witness against her, you're breaking this law. And so what does he say? Let the one of you without sin throw the first stone. Well, that's also really brilliant because in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, it says this, on the evidence 
This is another command in the law. On the evidence of two witnesses or three, the one who is to die shall be put to death. In other words, you have to have at least two eyewitnesses in a capital case. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. So in a trial where somebody says, yes, you blasphemed, or yes, you were caught in the act of adultery, and they would take them out to stone them, the witnesses would be, the law says, you have to throw the first stones. So when Jesus says that, what's he saying? It's more brilliant than you can imagine. He stands up and he says, whichever one of you wants to be the witness here, go ahead, like the law says, you throw the first stone. And they realize, I'm guilty too. If I throw this stone, I... Remember, these are Pharisees. They're trying to be devout. They're trying. They're very devious. They don't want to commit a sin, and they realize if I'm one of the witnesses, God's going to hold me responsible for being a false witness, for perverting justice with this woman. You see how brilliantly Jesus deals with this? He doesn't say what she did is okay. He also says, if you're right, she should. the law says for her to be stoned. Who are the witnesses here? You guys pick up your stone and go ahead. And they realize the tables have been turned. Now who's got the dilemma? Now they have the dilemma. And so that's why, if you've ever read this and wondered, so why after he said that, do they all start melting away? Because nobody's willing to sin, knowingly, willingly sin, just blatantly sin by throwing that first stone at that woman. And so these Pharisees begin to melt away from the oldest to the youngest, the ones who should know better, to the ones who don't always know better. And I I just wanted you to see what's going on, both the brilliance of the situation, how brilliant they are at trying to trap him, but then how Jesus turns things around, not in a malicious way. He just says, you pick up the stone and throw it like the law says, and you become a lawbreaker. Now, what do you guys want to do? And they decided, we're going to go home and think about it. Question? Yes, um... There's a comment in most Bibles that this passage is not in the original manuscripts. Yeah, Can I you? wondered how long it'd take you guys <laughs> to get to that. Can Good you that talk you're reading that? your Bible. I'm really glad that you're reading your Bible. Almost every, any modern translation is going to footnote John 7.53 to John 8.11. And they're going to say something about the earliest manuscripts do not contain this passage. In fact, manuscripts contain this passage at different places. When I say manuscripts, I mean copies of the originals. I mean, for 2,000 years, there have been copies, 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 copies. They Xerox it, Xerox it, Xerox it. You know I mean? They're copying this. And so one of the thoughts is, where did this originally go? And in fact, is this even original? And I'll just give you the short answer to here. There is no doubt in my mind This is indeed authentic. And I think a lot of scholars, well, there are obviously scholars that would disagree with that. But the idea, did Jesus do this? 99.9%. I don't have any doubt whatsoever. This is so authentically Jesus. This is such an authentic thing. Now, was it originally here when John wrote his gospel or was it put somewhere else? That I do not know. And that's why it's footnoted in your Bible. So I believe this is authentic. I simply would agree You cannot tell with it being in different places and different manuscripts, was it originally right here? And that's what they're going to tell you is can't guarantee. You know, I love that. Stop and think about this for a minute. This is a a rabbit trail. But just stop and think about this. If you're a Christian and you want people to say, my Bible is perfect, would you put that footnote in there? I wouldn't, but... Christians don't rely on covering over information. Seriously, and I'm not trying to brag on Christians. I'm just saying, I believe the Christian faith can withstand intellectual scrutiny. And that is, let us reason together. As God said in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. And so you're going to see a lot of things like that in your Bible. Why is that there? Because we want our faith to rest on reasoned observation of the true scriptures and not somebody glossing it over. So I love it that it's there. So don't think of that as a negative. Think of that as being very transparent. In fact, all through the scriptures, you're going to see the Bible write down all kinds of stuff, and you go, man, this is terrible marketing material. You know, but it's not there to market. It's there to tell you the truth. So good question.
One last uh, observation is the idea of Jesus has taken justice and mercy, because they've asked him to pick between justice and mercy, and what has he done? He said, yes, there is justice and there is mercy. And his answer to the woman is perfect. Go, in other words, I know you were being used as a pawn. I know this whole thing was unjust, and you will receive mercy. This is not right, the way they treated you. And leave your life of sin, because if you do not, you will die eternally. That is mercy and justice. Does that make sense? Jesus does not compromise either one. He just doesn't say, is it either or? He said, it is both. And watch, and when you read your Bibles, read about Jesus, you'll see him always answer that question in that way. So beautiful story, right there in the Temple Mount, right where they could find him if they wanted him. Well, I want to go to the next place because the next story happens after he leaves there. So here we are on the Temple Mount, and Jesus leaves the Temple Mount. And he is going to meet a man outside the Temple Mount, and that's going to be our next story. So I want to tell you where, uh, where we are here. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. So he's left the temple area. He sees a man who is blind from birth. He's born blind. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, here's the theological dilemma. In those days, they thought that if there was something wrong with you, you must have done something wrong for God to punish you. So if you were blind, you probably sinned. But here's the dilemma. He was born blind. So the rabbis had a field day trying to figure out, did his parents sin and for some reason he got punished for it? We kind of have a little of that theology in some of the fringes of Christianity, don't we? Uh, you know, you did something wrong, therefore bad things are happening to you. Or the rabbi said, well, maybe that doesn't sound right or fair. Why didn't God punish the parents? Maybe he sinned before he was born. Now, how you do that, I don't know. I know how children sin after they're born. I mean, they're just little sinners for several years. I mean, they're really into it. But how did that happen? And that's why they're asking him that. Like, hey, how do you stand on the big theological question of the day? And Jesus says, nah, that whole premise is wrong. This didn't happen to this guy because he sinned. It didn't happen to him because his parents sinned. He said, really, you guys are looking for who's to blame. I want to shift the whole paradigm, he says. I'm going to tell you what God can do with this. That's very pertinent to us as well. And so he says this, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Well, they probably both sinned, but that's not what happened here. He said, this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, think about this. He's setting up something really profound here. Even today, you think of light and darkness as good and evil. And that's what Jesus is going to do. So first of all, let me just set the stage because this story is so typically turned the world upside down. This man is blind. He lives in darkness. They thought he sinned, somebody sinned, there's some evil going on here. Jesus comes along and he said, you don't exactly have that right and I'm about to show you how. But he said, let's just go with this darkness thing. He said, I am the light of the world. So you've got light and darkness. You have a man, Jesus, who can see. You have the man who's born blind who cannot see. So let's keep going. So when he had said this, Jesus spit on the ground, made a little mud, and put it on the man's eyes. And he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now the word Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed his eyes and came home seeing. Well, I want to pause there for a second. I want to show you where this happened, exactly where this happened, because it's really easy to tell. First of all, you've got the pools of Bethesda, by the way, which we had in a prior lesson. So this man gets healed up here. He goes down the hill. You don't see it on this map, but this is 900 steps down. I have walked up this. Not fun. So 900 steps to the pool of Siloam, all the way at the bottom. Remember, the temple's up on the mount. This is down into the valley. 
sends him down to the pool of Siloam. I want to tell you about this pool of Siloam. This is really interesting because this was not known where this was until very recently. This has just been excavated in very recent times. Let me tell you where it came from. Let's go back to 700 years earlier. King Hezekiah, you may have heard of him. You can read about him in the book of Kings in the Old Testament. He was a king of, uh, he was ruling in Jerusalem. He was a king of Israel, Judah really, but let's forget the technicalities. He's king of this area of the Jews. And the Assyrians, think uh, Iraqis, are invading this area. And they're going to come and besiege Jerusalem and destroy it and kill everybody. Well, the big problem in a siege, he's got walls. The problem is you need water. It's not like you can walk out and go, time out, we're coming to get water. You know, no, not going to happen. So there was a spring outside the city wall. It's called the Gion Spring right here. And so what Hezekiah did to get ready is he had some guys start here. He built this pool inside the walls. This is inside the walls. There's no water there at the moment. And he has a bunch of guys underground start digging, chiseling out rock. And he has a bunch of guys from this side, from the spring, start chiseling out rock. Now you look at that and you say, gee, Terry, that is not a very efficient way to chisel out the rock. It goes like this. Hey, they're underground. They have no idea where they are. I mean, would it have been a lot shorter just to go straight? Yeah, but they're wandering around trying to figure out, where are we? I don't know. I think it's maybe over that way. So they're chiseling this out. They actually, believe it or not, because honestly, if this were me in a do-it-yourself project, never would have met. Never would have met. They actually met in the middle. Now, it wasn't a pretty picture, but they met in the middle. So what happens? Water from the spring flows through this tunnel. They've carved out a solid rock. I'm going to show it to you in just a second. And it goes into this pool. Then they block up the spring on the outside. They can't, first of all, they put rocks there in the opening, and then they camouflage it so the enemy doesn't know there's a spring there. They're going to be thirsty, and they've rerouted the water inside the city walls. That happened about 700 B.C. Here's what that tunnel looks like. This is what they chiseled through in the time of Hezekiah. This is pretty thin here. It's wider in other places. But they literally chiseled this passage out. Now, they were so happy when they finally met each other, they put an inscription in ancient Hebrew, carved it into the wall, and here's as best you can read it today. This is the inscription, by the way. So they've, they've chiseled this into the side of the wall where this met. You say, well, this is pretty, pretty narrow, Terry. Yeah, they're chiseling it out of rock. You know, they don't care how wide it is. They just want water to run through here. I just need to be able to get through here and get the rock out. Mammoth undertaking. Brilliant move, though. Here's what it says. Can't read all of it. This is the story of the tunnel. While the axes were against each other, and they, while they were three cubits left to cut, in other words, they're about three, four feet away from each other, the voice of a man calling to one of his buddies was heard on the other side, and they realized, hey, we're close. So the stone cutters struck each man towards the sound of the voice of the other guy, axe against axe, and flowed water from the source to the pool for 1,200 cubits. And so the water, you can walk through this tunnel if you want to today, and there's usually water in it. In fact, unless the water's too high, you can't walk through it. But there's always water in it still from that spring going toward the pool of Siloam. Well, for a long time, people knew from the Bible that this had happened. They read in the Bible that he did it. They don't know where the pool of Siloam is in Jerusalem. And here it is. So it was found, and it's been partially excavated. This is uh, part of the pool. So you've got these steps going down into the pool. The pool is huge, and it hasn't been excavated. I mean, you still see the, the land out here. It's not all been excavated. Let me show you a view from the other end because it's a little better picture. See this? See the stairs going down? Once they finish excavating, they'll find all the rest of the pool out here in this area. But you can walk along here today and realize that was the Pool of Siloam. That's what Hezekiah built 700 years before. That's the pool Jesus sent this man down to to wash his eyes. Let me show you a couple of other pictures because a magnificent archaeological site. These, obviously, these are brand new. But all of these, 2,000 plus, 2,700-year-old stones, 
still there as he would go down into the pool. Another good shot of it from above. You can see how big. This was a huge pool. This is one side of the pool, and the pool itself is out here. And then I just gave you a little close-up here because I wanted you to see. Those are the stones that Hezekiah's men put in. Those are ancient stones. You can walk on them. Well, you got to go to Israel to walk on them, but I mean, you can walk on them. That, I don't know. That's where that guy walked down those stones to wash his eyes. A man who's born blind, never seen in his life. Now, here's a question I'm going to, well, I'll let you ask in case one of you asks my favorite question here. Question. Actually, I was going to make a comment. Okay. Do you go back to the picture before this one? Go back to the picture before this one. Yes, I will. As you look up at the very top of this picture, you see a wall up there and you see trees. Back up here? No, up the very top. I believe that's the Temple Mount. Oh, back up here. As you were talking about how far it is. Yes. Okay. You can that's see it in temple. that picture. So it's down. You can look up at the temple. But I'm glad you said that because here's my favorite question. If you just need to wash the mud off your eyes, why do you send this poor blind guy 900 steps down? You know, stumbling around to get down to this pool. Is that, is that like Jesus going, <laughs> watch this, you know? No, I don't think so. I mean, that's not the Jesus that we know, okay? So he sends him down to this pool. Well, there are maybe a lot of reasons for it, but I just want you to think as you look up, I want you to imagine the temple there, white, white stones, gold shining in the sun. He washes his eyes, he looks up, and the first thing this guy ever sees, and as he moves on, and the story goes on, I'm not going to read all of it, he goes to the temple. He can go to the temple now. 900 steps, he goes up seeing the beauty of God's temple for the first time in his life. I think, that's just my opinion, that's why Jesus sent him there, or at least one of the reasons is when he came back seeing, that's what he saw. That's what he fixed his eyes on for those 900 steps. First thing he'd ever seen in his life. And he sees the temple. Question? You can't see it in the picture because it hasn't been excavated, and obviously there's other stuff built on top of it. But that entrance that you see right under your second red mark, that black hole is an entrance where they've excavated the original street. Yes. And so we know that you would have left there and walked up right. that street. That's where the steps were. Yeah, so there's still excavations going on. But what's really beautiful about this is you see these stories, because you know one of my passions is for you to make the Bible come alive. I don't ever want you to think that your Bible is once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. You know, this is not a fairy tale. It's grounded in history, in reality, in archaeology, in economics, in politics, in petty jealousies. When you see these Jewish leaders trying to get Jesus out of the way, you think, Wait, was that a Democrat and a Republican? I mean, you, you see human nature playing itself out like it always has. The hostility, the political dilemmas. Here you see Jesus sending this man to a real place to wash his eyes and walk back up to the temple. And I want you to see these things and imagine and understand these things happening in their context. Well, I want to finish this story because John chapter 9 is one of the most brilliant stories. I don't mean it's brilliant because it's made up. It's a brilliant thing that happened. I want you to watch the interplay of darkness and light. So I'm going to tell you and maybe read you a little bit of, uh, of this story as we go on. So in John chapter 9, here's what happens to the guy. So the guy comes back seeing, right? So he comes back uh, seeing, and so he comes to the people that knew him, and they said, uh, the neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar, I mean all his life, said, is that not the guy that used to sit there and beg, the blind guy? He said, no, he just looks like him. But the guy said, I'm the guy. You are not going to believe what happened to me. They go, you're kidding me. Tell us about it. Well, this guy, Jesus, made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He sent me down. I stumbled four times. Sent me down to the pool of Siloam to wash. I did, and I can see. And they go, you've got to be kidding me. Where is this guy? He goes, I don't know. I have no idea what he looks like. I was blind, you know? I mean, this thing's got the ring of authenticity. Hey, where is he? I don't know. I have no idea what he looks like, right? So he doesn't know what he looks like. So they take him to the Pharisees. And here's where you find out the crucial fact. Because first of all, this is where Jesus gets a little more assertive as he senses this crescendo of hostility. This was a Sabbath. We've talked about that before. If he'd healed him, on a Sunday, it would have been okay, but this was Saturday. 
healed him on the Sabbath. So they go, "Uh uh-oh, Pharisees are not going to like this. They think it's against the law. It's against their oral tradition to heal somebody on the Sabbath. So they take him to the Pharisees. Now watch what happens in this story. So they brought the man to the Pharisees who had formerly been blind, and it was a Sabbath when this happened. Now some of the Pharisees said, this man cannot be from God. Jesus, he cannot be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, yeah, but how can a man who's a sinner do a miracle like this? And there was a division among them. So first it's hostility towards Jesus, but now even the Pharisees are starting to be divided. Jesus is always a dividing force. I mean, we talked in our last lesson that nobody's neutral about Jesus. You either think he's a liar or a lunatic or Lord. People are not that neutral, and neither were they, and they began to be divided over who is he. So they decide, let's ask the blind guy, what do you think? This is hilarious. I mean, really? You're the educated elite? Ah, Let's ask the blind guy. And so said, who do you think he is? He said, "Ah, he's a prophet. I mean, must be, did a miracle. He's probably a prophet from God. I think he's a great guy. The Jews didn't believe he'd been blind. They said, nah, can't be a prophet. You know what? Maybe you weren't really blind. (laughs) I mean, this this is, you couldn't make this up. But if you think about their commitments, it's like, well, this doesn't fit our paradigm. He healed on the Sabbath, so he can't be a man of God. And you say you were blind, but now you can see, well, the only conclusion is clearly, you were mistaken. You were not blind before. And so they said, you were not blind. And so they go get his parents. And I'm reading you what this says. They bring his parents in, in front of the Pharisees. They're scared to death. You know, they're like, oh, this is a no-win situation for us. And so what do they do? Oh, bold parents. They said, basically, I have to tell you, That's our son, and I have to tell you, he was born blind. But as far as what happened after that, have no idea. You can talk to him yourself. We'll see you later. we got to go. And so, sure enough, they confirm that that's him. Well, now the Pharisees are like, well, gosh, so he was blind. What do you know? So they asked him a second time, called the blind guy in and said, okay, I guess you were blind, but give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And here's one of the most beautiful responses. And the blind man said, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Okay, stop here and think about this for a minute. Who's blind in this story now? Really, who's groping about trying to figure out what's going on? The Pharisees. They're the ones that theoretically can see. They're the smart ones in this story. But who is ludicrously saying, well, maybe you weren't blind. Well, let's go get his parents. Well, let's ask the blind guy again. What do you think? They're, they become blind. And who's the one guy in this story that actually knows what he's doing? The blind guy. He says, you know, I may not know very much, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. And I'm pretty much going to stand on that. Is that not brilliant? That's Jesus turning the world upside down. The blind man now can see, and the Pharisees are blind to what's going on. So after that, blind guy starts to get an attitude. He says, listen, I got places to go. I got things to do. I got a whole lifetime to catch up on here. I don't have that much time to fool with you guys. He said, look, you guys don't want to listen to this, but I'll tell you this. Never since the world began, this is verse 32, has anyone even heard of opening the eyes of a man who was born blind. There had been rumors of miracles done by famous rabbis in the past that somebody who'd gone blind and they were somehow miraculously able to restore their sight. But this guy accurately says, nowhere in the history of the Jews, nowhere in the history of the world has anybody ever claimed that somebody that was born blind, I mean literally physiologically deficient, has ever gotten their sight back. He said, but this guy did it. And they said, well, you were born in sin, and we're not going to listen to you. Then why have you been asking him this question over and over? And so they throw him out. So I want to pause there, and I just want to make a couple of observations in this. You notice the interesting interplay between light and dark. And those who felt like they were in the light have now become blind. They cannot see what's happening here. And yet this blind man with no education, obviously no education, certainly at that time being born blind, he's not going to be educated. He's a beggar. That's the best he can do. 
He's now the man who actually has the clarity in this situation. He's the one who can see, I don't know, but I know God did this for me. That's a powerful testimony. You don't have to be a scholar to testify to that, and that's the same as true today. I know sometimes when you get in situations with people who question, why do you believe what you believe? And you go, gosh, I don't have all the answers to the questions. I'm not a scholar. I haven't been to seminary, and I just don't, I haven't memorized the Bible. I don't know. You know what? Neither is this guy. And yet, this is one of the most powerful declarations. I was blind, but now I see. And that's our testimony too. I was this, but now I, I do this. I was on that road, and now I'm on this road. That's as powerful a testimony today, and you do not need a scholar for that. In fact, you'd have to be a scholar to misunderstand that. And that's exactly what happened here. So, light and dark. And then secondly, I'm going to give you another thought on this. I'm going to make this suggestion to you. What if the blind... I don't know if you read your Bible this way, but you should read your Bible this way. What if the blind guy had said, hmm, it's a long way to the pool of Siloam he probably won't know, I'm just going to go over to the water fountain over here and I'm going to wash the mud out of my eyes. Would he have still regained his sight? What do you think? Don't know, do we? Very interesting question. But the interesting thing is he didn't. And I think there's a little lesson in that, and that is for God to be able to use us. Remember, what did he say about this guy at the beginning? This happens so that God's power, God's work, will be seen. And it was. The man who's born blind now is like, hey, I can't tell you what happened. God healed me. I didn't take any medicine. I wasn't on a drug trial. God healed me. So the work of God is manifest in his life. But he obeyed. He did what Jesus told him to do. Would it have worked out had he done otherwise? We don't know. The story doesn't end. But I do know this, that when we obey God, that's when he can really use us to display his power. Obedience is what God uses. Faithfulness is what God uses to display his power. And I think that's a powerful lesson. But I want to leave you with this challenge. As we stand by the pool of Siloam, I want to leave you with a simple challenge. And it's this. The Pharisees had such strong preconceived ideas they had such strong biases about who God was, who the Messiah needed to be, and exactly how this thing needed to play out, that they effectively were blinded. They could not see the truth. They could not see the light when it was right in front of them. And I would challenge us in the same way, because we're human and we have preconceived ideas and we have biases. And I would challenge you to say, where are your and my biases keeping us from seeing the glory of God. And that's why, one of the reasons why we have this New Testament. If you want to know who Jesus really is, this is who Jesus really is. And I can dream and say, well, I think Jesus would be like this. I think Jesus would do that. I can't believe Jesus would ever do this. That's preconceived ideas, and it will blind us. We need to let Jesus be who he is and say what he has said. And that's how we keep from becoming blind like the Pharisees. So I hope you like this lesson of Jesus in the temple and you see what he's doing here. He's not compromising mercy and justice. He loves, but he's also truthful. In other words, he is truth and grace both combined. He is light in a dark world for anyone who is willing to humble themselves to see it. And that's still true today. Those of you that are followers of Christ, you are bearers of the light. In the book of uh, James, it says, you shine like lights in a dark world. Well, that's no credit to you and me. It's not saying, oh, you're such wonderful people. We carry the very words of light. We carry the story of Jesus Christ. We carry the message, repent. The kingdom of God has come, and it's open to anyone who will follow Jesus Christ. That's the light that we bring into the world. And so let's never forget that's our job. The kingdom brings light into the darkness. It brings sanity into the insanity of our world. And that's what we're about, and that's what Jesus was saying. And the people that could not see that reacted very violently toward this. 
Well, next time, Jesus is kind of on his very last journey. He's not going to leave Judea, but he has one more stop before the cross. Remember, we're in September, October, the cross, March, maybe April. He has one more place to go, back where it all began, to the Jordan River. And that's what we'll talk about next time. Thanks, guys.